Amen. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3. And uh, we have been studying through the book, um, went through the first couple of chapters, um, not super quickly, but somewhat quickly compared to where we're at now. As we've entered chapter 3, we've begun looking at this office of overseer. And there's a list of qualifications, there were 15 of them specifically that we highlighted, one of them kind of implicit. But out of these 15 qualifications, we saw that really all of these apply to all of us except for two. And that's the ability to teach and the recent convert, Um, must not be a recent convert. So, but as far as all these other ones go, all of these apply to us. And we looked at last week, we started off the list looking at how an overseer, uh, who is also just, uh, if you see that word overseer, elder, pastor, shepherd, if you see bishop in your translation, that's all the same thing. It's all the same office. So this overseer, this pastor office, is to be above reproach. Now that doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect, but they understand that it's better to err on the side of caution and holiness rather than to risk being perceived a certain way because of the responsibility that they have to lead the congregation and the flock. Likewise, we as Christians ought to be above reproach because we are representing Christ, and we don't want to risk falsely representing Christ. So this week we're going to move on in our list, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. You can follow along with me here in verse 2. Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, And then here's our phrase this week, the husband of one wife. So when it says the husband of one wife, there's a lot of different interpretations here. I've heard a lot of them in churches from people that I respect, like spiritual mentors that disagree on this. So here are some some different interpretations I've heard. One I've heard is this means that uh, the pastor must be married. He is the husband of one wife. If he's not married doesn't meet the qualification. I've heard that that this means the pastor must not be a polygamist, husband of one wife, not two wives, not ten wives, one wife. I've heard that means the pastor must not have ever been divorced. So the husband of one wife means that they have not ever divorced. They have had this one wife their whole life, and that's it. Okay. I've heard that it means that the pastor cannot have ever been remarried, like maybe his Wife passed away, but cannot remarry because there's this one wife. So there's actually more that I could give here, but instead of going through the whole list of possible interpretations, what I'd like to do is look at it together and try to come to a good interpretation that we think the text supports to use to tell us what it doesn't say. And you'll see that kind of as we unfold it here, okay? Um, And this is another one of those things that I feel like I need to say up front. There are multiple interpretations here that I think are technically valid. It doesn't mean they're all right, but what it means is that we don't need to get in a situation where we're talking to a believer who disagrees with us on this phrase and say, well, you're unbiblical. I don't even think you're a Christian, okay? That's not helpful. People can come to a different conclusion on this and still believe the Bible's God's word. So um, the question we need to answer right now is, how do we come right now to a faithful conclusion? So I'm going to Greek out on you for a little bit here, okay? Really helpful for us to see the Greek here. There are actually only three words in this phrase. In my translation, it says the husband of one wife. The literal word-for-word translation is this, one woman man. So an overseer 
is to be a one-woman man, is what the Greek is there, okay? So man is this andra, which is from anthropos. And anthropos is where we get our word anthropology, okay? It's a man, study of man. And this word for woman, gunaikos, comes from gune, which is where we get the word gynecologist. So this is woman. So whenever you see these words in the Greek, it's gune and it's andra or anthropos. It's man and woman. It isn't always translated man and woman. Sometimes it's translated man or woman. Sometimes it's translated husband and wife. In fact, almost every time you see husband in there, it's that word for man. Same thing with wife. Most of the times you see the word wife, it's that word, that gune, okay? So when we look at this in the Greek, there's not, we look in English, we're like, oh, it says husband. It doesn't say man. Well, the translation, it's the same word. Man, husband, that's the same word there. So in the Greek, it's one woman, man. In the Greek, the order of the words and the gender of the words is important. In English, we have, I've heard, the hardest language to learn. Most other languages have genders in their, in their languages. So if you've ever tried to learn Spanish or you took a Spanish class, you'll know that in the Spanish there's these masculine words and then these feminine words, and they have different endings on the end. And you take the word and conjugate it different ways, and depending on what ending, it tells you if you're talking about um, a singular or plural, male, female, a group, and all those sorts of things. It's the exact same thing with Greek. It's the same way. So whereas in English, the order of the sentence is really important, in Greek it's not so the same way. In English, we have the subject and then we have the predicate. So if the word is at the very beginning, that tells me this is the subject. And then you've got the action right after that. And then you've got who the action affects or what happens after that. But in the Greek, you could actually scramble all those words up in different orders and it still mean the same thing. For the Greek, you look at the end of the word. And if the end of the word says subject, then that's the subject. It may not be at the beginning of the sentence. It may be halfway through or at the very end of the sentence. Their word order determines what's the most important thing that I'm trying to communicate right now. So in English, I would just stress something. I, I, would, I would say it louder, or I would emphasize with a pause. In the Greek, they just throw that at the very beginning of the sentence, whether it's the subject or the predicate or whatever. Okay. So you may be thinking... Bro, are we going to have to sit through this the whole time? Well, why is this important? I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now why this is important to think about it this way. The order isn't as important as the ending of the word. And the endings of the word, because the order can be switched around, you look for the words that have the same ending, and you can clump all those in one group. So where I would say in English, look at that long, beautiful pew. Okay, long, beautiful describes pew. Well, in the Greek, they would know how you're describing that by the ending. Every word that had the same ending as pew is describing the pew. The reason this applies for us here is because when we look at this one woman man, and I'm going to show you some more examples of this, this one woman goes together. It's the same ending. And then there's man. So it's a Describing a type of man, what type of man is it? It is a one-woman man. 
Here's why I bring this up. There's some other places where this occurs. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, so if you scroll down just a little bit, in verse 12, when it's talking about deacons, it says, let deacons each be, I'm going to read it in my translation, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. So when you look in the Greek there, it's the exact same. They just make men plural instead of the overseer. You see that singular there. So the actual translation word for word would be, let deacons each be one woman men. You see it in another place. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9. And this is probably the most helpful place that we see it. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9 says, and the context is talking about caring for widows in the church and what the qualifications are um, to be able to care for them. So he says... Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Now look at this. Having been the wife of one husband. Guess what? When you look at the Greek there, it's the exact same, but they have flipped it. And now, instead of one woman man, the widow is to be a one man woman. The one and the man go together with their endings, and then the woman is independent. So... When we take this back to our context of looking at qualifications for an overseer, here's what all of these things can tell us about specifically a, the husband of one wife, a one-woman man here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. First of all, the order and the gender of the words helps us to see, again, that we are talking about men filling this office, Okay. We're talking about men filling this office. And the reason I bring that up is because I don't want you to ever think I've seen one little place in Scripture where it says this. I want you to see that this is a consistent theme throughout Scripture, this idea. When talking about women, that word was bumped to the end. But when talking about men, it's the opposite. So this is the office for a man to fulfill. Second thing it tells us is that the conversation about widows helps us to see that when the man was a one-woman man isn't important. By definition, a widow does not have a husband. But the qualification was she's to be a one-man woman. So what that tells us for this role of pastor is that the pastor doesn't have to be married in order to qualify for this office. The widow is not married to qualify for being taken care of as a widow. And that same construction is used there. So we shouldn't look at this one husband, the husband of one wife, this one woman man, and say, okay, well, this brother's not married. He doesn't qualify. Okay? We shouldn't, we shouldn't take that approach. So based on these, we can safely say pastors must be men whose marital status was faithful when it existed. Okay? Pastors must be men whose marital status was faithful when it existed. It could be that his wife passed away, but he was faithful when she was alive. There's a lot of older pastors that kind of face this today. Maybe they are in interim pastor work or even pastoring churches, and their wives have passed away, but we don't tell them, hey, brother, look, I'm sorry for your loss. You don't qualify anymore. I need you to step out of the pulpit. No, we don't, we don't say that. So we shouldn't argue that from this text. Now, here's what we don't have spelled out clearly here. And these are questions that I've heard a lot. 
Here's what we don't have clearly here. Number one, can a pastor have ever been divorced? Number two, can a pastor ever remarry either because his spouse has passed away or they've been divorced? Number three, can a pastor serve who has never been married? Okay, can he be single? Since we don't have these answers clearly spelled out here, the best course of action is to examine in all of Scripture what is expected of believers in general and then to apply that to pastors as well. I don't think it would be doing this text justice, and I've heard this done before, where we say the husband of one wife and jump to a conclusion and say, see, pastor can never be divorced because of this verse right here. Well, someone else is going to come along and say, I don't see anything about that here. I don't see where you're getting that. We need to be able to ground it in something else. So we're going to look at some outside passages and answer these three questions and then come back and apply it to us generally moving forward. Okay. So number one, can a pastor have never been married or be single? If you could um, turn back a little bit to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians for a good bit of this. So go ahead and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And then we're going to be going back to chapter 7 a lot um, because it's a significant chapter on marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I'm going to read in verse 5. I'm going to give you a little bit of context. Paul's defending his ministry to the Corinthians. And he's going to make the argument that he served them and he's going to defend his character and his motives to show that they were pure. And he's going to defend his ministry by saying, look, I could have done all these things, but I didn't. I served you because it was the right thing to do, is the point that he's going to make here. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So in this context, he's asking rhetorical questions. He starts in verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? The answer is, yes, you do have the right to do that. And his argument is, though I have the right, I didn't do it because I wanted to be pure and blameless. So the same logic applies to this. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? The implication is he doesn't have a believing wife. He's operating as a single man. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament that we have, single. He had the right to do that, but he didn't take advantage. Another example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verses 7 through 8, he describes it as his singleness as a gift from God. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So Paul says, I am single and it's a gift and it's not for everybody. What this tells us about the role of pastor is this one woman man does not mean that that man must be married. Look at Paul. Okay? Look at Paul. So can a pastor have never been married or be single? And the text would seem to say yes. 
If Paul is single and ministering, then one woman man can't mean that a pastor can't be single. Number two, can a pastor have had a divorce? Logic would instantly answer this question for us. Can a pastor have ever had a divorce? If divorce is wrong, then no. Okay? If it's okay, then yes. And for this, I'm going to read from Matthew 5.32. If you'd like to stick your finger in 1 Corinthians, we'll come back there. Um, but um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. Very famous passage. This is the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of famous teaching here. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32 are both on this topic of divorce. He says in verse 31, It was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This requires for us to make an assumption here. If you're guilty of adultery, you cannot be thought of as a one-woman man. I think that's a given. If you disagree with me and you're going to say, I don't think we can make that assumption, come talk to me later. I would love to have that conversation. Pretty sure most of us will agree. One-woman man, at least at the bare minimum, excludes adultery. And so as Jesus is teaching here, He says divorce outside of sexual immorality is adultery. Okay, well, my my spouse can't spend money wisely and is causing us to go bankrupt. Is that sexual immorality? No. Then that divorce is adulterous. This is hard. It's a hard teaching. Yeah, but what if my wife, what if my husband... Is it sexual immorality? Well, no, but it's adultery then. To have that divorce is adultery. We'll look at a couple of that before you jump on me here. Okay, just let me finish this. If you still want to jump me on me at the end of the sermon, then have at it. Okay? Divorce outside sexual immorality is adultery. But also, marrying someone who was divorced in this way is also committing adultery. Okay? So the first one, the divorce outside of sexual immorality, what Jesus is saying is, you may call yourself divorced, but you were still married to that person because sexual immorality didn't happen. So by you separating and seeing someone else, you were actually seeing someone while you're still married in God's eyes to this person. They didn't commit sexual immorality. So, if in that process, I am a removed third party, this has happened over here, and then I engage in this relationship with this person, now I am joining in that adultery, is what he's saying. So in the passage here, divorce outside of sexual immorality is adultery. Marrying someone divorced in this way is adultery. So there are some instances where divorce does not violate the one-woman-man principle. And the instance that we see it here is sexual immorality. Jesus says if someone commits sexual immorality, that 
is a ground for divorce. Everyone who divorces except for that ground is committing adultery. But when that is present, that is not an adulterous relationship. So there's one instance where divorce is permitted. But there's another. So hopefully you kept your finger in 1 Corinthians. You can go back there to chapter 7. And I'm going to read verses 12, 13, and 15. Really, if you want some extra reading to do, go and read all of chapter 7. The whole, I really just wanted to read the whole chapter to you, but I know that we need to be out of here at a certain time. We need to let the musicians practice. So homework, go read 1 Corinthians 7. It is really, really good okay, and really helpful for our conversation. But here I'm just going to read verses 12, 13, and 15. So Paul says, to the rest, so he just talked to the unmarried and widows, then he talked to the married. Now in verse 12 he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. I'm going to pause there. If there's a believer married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever does not want to separate, the believer should not separate. If they consent, you should not get a divorce. Okay? Continue in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So if there's a, two spouses, they're married, one's a believer, one's an unbeliever, the unbeliever says, I'm done and I'm gone. The believer is not enslaved to that relationship because they are operating on two totally different levels here. You cannot force someone to stay in that relationship if they are going away. Now, if they're both believers, you can address them both as believers and say, not supposed to get a divorce, not supposed to get a divorce, let's work through this together. But for the person that's not a believer, that doesn't mean anything to them. They're going to say, don't care, bye, they're gone. So he gives this permission in this instance, in the case of someone being an unbeliever, where divorce is permitted. Okay? So the first instance that divorce is permitted is with sexual immorality. The second instance where divorce is not considered adultery is when an unbelieving spouse leaves. As far as it depends on you, remain in the union. Now, there, I, this is where I'm going to include the exception. I think that there is an exception in this also related to abuse in relationships. But unfortunately, we don't have the time to unpack that. I think that we'll get to do that at a later time. But I think that in instances of abuse, this fits in with the unbeliever uh, scenario. And I can defend that scripturally too. So if that's something that you feel like applies to you, I've had relationships before where someone came and the wife usually is the one that's getting abused. And she was incredibly conflicted because in her mind, I'm going to honor the Lord. I love the Lord and I know he hates divorce. So despite me getting abused, I, I think that I'm supposed to just stay in this relationship and take it. There's been other people that have been advised 
If you're in an abusive relationship, God hates divorce. You need to work it out and stay in it. I do not think that that's biblical. And I'm willing to have a good conversation with you about that if that's something that is really conflicting you in your mind. And then maybe, Lord willing, on another date when we can just focus on that specifically, I can show you why I believe that this passage confirms that. So that's where I want to put the exception there. So, can a pastor have had a divorce? Only if it involved a spouse committing sexual immorality, abuse, or an unbelieving spouse leaving of their own accord. Otherwise, no, because that's the command for Christians in general. Does that make sense? That's the command for Christians in general. So a pastor doesn't get a get-out-of-jail-free card and, oh, well, for the pastor, it's okay. No. So number two, can a pastor have had a divorce only in those situations? Number three, can a pastor have been remarried? Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 7, hopefully you're still there. And we're going to go to verses 8 and 9. But again, the whole chapter, please go home and read it. so good. Verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and the widows, so he's talking to unmarried people and to widows. They've lost the spouse. I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control... They should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So this command is to the unmarried and the widow. The widow has been married before. And what is the widow being instructed to do? Remain single, but if you can't, marry again. Remarry. So yes... Remarriage is acceptable as long as the new spouse isn't living in adultery due to a previous divorce, which we talked about earlier. So, so what is our, having all this put out there, what is the conclusion for our pastoral qualifications, and then what can we take from this for ourselves, okay? For a pastoral candidate, here is what one woman man means. Number one, a man. Number two, if this man is married now or was married in the past, he is not guilty of adultery or polygamy. What is adultery? Adultery includes divorce unless there was sexual immorality or abuse or an unbelieving spouse left. Here's what one woman man does not mean. It does not mean One woman man, well, it could be a a woman, one woman with one man, or it could be one man with one one woman. It's not a woman or a man. The word order is important. One woman man does not mean that the pastor can't remarry. And one woman man does not mean that the pastor must be married. The pastor, this is what this means. I'm going to summarize it in a single sentence. The pastor must handle his marriage relationship biblically. That's what this phrase means. The pastor must handle his marriage relationship biblically. We try to make this really complex, but it's really actually that simple. That's what this means. 
I've seen pastors turned down because they are not married. They're still single. And this is the, this is the passage that I heard used to defend it. I've seen these things, and I think that that's going beyond what the text says. I think the text is saying, if the pastor is married, it better be a faithful, biblical marriage. So what does this mean for us? We need to be faithful in our marriage relationships. I think that many churches have de-emphasized the importance of the marriage relationship through silence and ignoring these things. And we make such a big deal about so many sins in the, in the world, homosexuality, which is sinful, theft and terrorism, sinful things, lying, all these things, but then when it comes to the integrity of our marriages, we turn a blind eye. We are called to be faithful in our marriages. The divorce rate in the church should be tremendously lower than the outside world. Guess what happens in reality? It's the exact same. It is the exact same. Our marriages look just like every other marriage in our country. This ought not to be so. This isn't just for pastors. This is for all of us. Me and Stacy, when we were at uh, Cyprus, one of our churches, they had an annual, I don't remember if they called it a marriage retreat or a couple's retreat or what they called it, but it was annual every year. They went away for a weekend, um, usually in Dallas, I think, and we stayed in a hotel and they had some speakers come and it was kind of like a marriage conference. We went every year. It was excellent. And I had someone that had said something once and we were inviting them to go because we see the value in, in that for our marriage and they said, oh, well, our marriage doesn't have problems. So they had this understanding that well, we, only, we only invest in our marriage when, it's, when things are shaky. When things are okay, we don't need to do any more work. And that's not true. All of our marriages need investment all the time. We need to take good care of our marriages. And I'm going to show you why here in just a second as we unpack that. But we need to be faithful. Here's the reason this is important, especially for a pastor. The marriage relationship is a direct reflection of the gospel. Our marriages are pictures of the gospel. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. Your marriage is that picture of the gospel where someone can look at your marriage and they see the truth of the gospel played out in your marriage. This isn't something I'm making up. Ephesians chapter 5. Anytime I go through marriage counseling, I'm going through right now with, with my cousin. She's getting married. And this is the first passage that we hit on regarding this marriage relationship. Ephesians chapter 5. The whole thing goes from verse 22 down to 33, but I just want to read verses 31 and 32. He gives the way that husbands and wives ought to treat each other. In each example he gave, he said, wives, do this because Jesus. 
Husbands, do this because Jesus. Then here's what he says in verse 31. He quotes Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he refers to marriage, he quotes Genesis, and then he says this, marriage is a mystery. And every married person in here said, amen. Marriage is a mystery. It's a profound mystery. But then he says this, here's what we do know. It's a mystery but it refers to Christ and the church. The reason why God structured marriage the way he did is mysterious at times, but what we do know is he did it in part to show us the gospel so that we can see a picture of the gospel. That's what our marriages are supposed to be. Jesus sacrificed himself for the church out of love. Therefore, husbands, sacrifice yourself for your wife out of love. The church submits to Jesus out of love. Therefore, wives, submit to your husbands out of love. That's why those instructions exist. They don't exist because of some kind of superiority or inferiority. They exist because God wants the world to see the gospel in our marriages. He wants the world to see that. If a pastor is expected to proclaim the gospel, he must reflect the gospel in his marriage and in all of his relationships. Likewise, if we expect the world to believe the gospel we must reflect the gospel in our marriages and in our relationships. When we are faithful in our relationships and the world sees that, they're going to get a picture of what God's faithfulness is. They're going to get a picture of that. Do your relationships, marriage relationships and other relationships, do your relationships declare the faithfulness of God? Do people know that they can trust you? Does your spouse know that they can trust you? Can you trust your spouse? Let us seek to be faithful in all things, especially our marriages, because our God is faithful to us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your love for us isn't dependent upon what we do. It isn't dependent upon our ability to earn your love because we could never earn it. You don't love us because we provide something for you. You need nothing. You love us and you give yourself for us just because you love us. Father, would you help us to have that level of love for our spouses? Father, for Stacy and I, would you give us that unconditional love for one another? That our children might see how much we love each other and understand that you love them in the same way. 
that the surrounding world would see our love for one another and understand a little bit more clearly what your love is like. Father, for all the marriages in our church, we know the enemy seeks to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And we know that he has his crosshairs set on our marriages. Father, we need you to equip us to endure, to love, to have patience, to stand firm and steadfast. We need you to strengthen our marriages. For those couples that are having a hard time and that they're telling everyone else that everything is okay, but they're struggling, Father, we know that there's nothing new under the sun, but the temptation is that we would hide these things. I pray that you would strengthen that couple and that you would bring that to light so that others can surround them and invest in them as they seek to strengthen their marriage. Father, help us to be one woman men and one man women. We love you. We thank you that you have saved us through the gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.